This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Hello, and welcome to Dialogue Gospel Study for May 23rd, 2021. We're pleased to be exploring Doctrine and Covenants 51 through 59 with Dr. Ben Abbott. I'm Rebecca Deschweinitz, and along with fellow Dialogue Foundation board members, uh, Chris Kimball and Michael Austin, I'm happy to welcome you all. If you're joining us for the first time, please know that all of our previous lessons are available as podcasts or videos and linked at dialoguejournal.com, where you can also find the entire 50 plus years of the journal with all of its spectacular art, poetry, personal essays, fiction, sermons, and scholarship. Ben's lesson will be added to our list of previous lessons, and that usually happens by the end of the day. If you have enjoyed having access to more than five decades of dialogue and these gospel study lessons, we invite you to make a contribution in support of the mission and ongoing work of dialogue. If you're on our mailing list, you know that the Dialogue Foundation has recently launched the Sustaining Dialogue Campaign. Founder Eugene England explained what this endeavor is all about in our first issue of the journal. My faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. We hope you will join us in working to secure the future of this vision by ensuring the sustainability of dialogue for the next 50 years and beyond. Our objective is to create a fund that will produce enough increase to finance the journal and all of its associated resources in perpetuity. We've looked forward to this campaign and expected the move. To fulfill Jean's vision in the 21st century, we have made the journal all 54 years of archived issues and all of our new digital offerings, including this gospel study series, our podcast and other features entirely free for online users. We are proud to do so. It was the right thing to do, but it means moving away from a subscription model uh, of funding. We have spent the past few years figuring out how a digital model for the Dialogue Foundation might work. We have now set a budget, made a plan, and we want to ask you for your help. There's more information at uh, givetodialogue.com. We also have an email address dedicated to this campaign. You can contact us about that at sustainingdialogue at dialoguejournal.com. So this morning, if you're with us live on Zoom, you're welcome to post respectful and relevant comments and questions in the chat. We'll also keep track of what folks have to say on Facebook, where we are also live. We look forward to integrating some of your comments and questions into today's lesson. Uh, we're thrilled to have uh, Dr. Ben Abbott with us this morning. Just our usual uh, caveat that um, Dr. Abbott, uh, we invited him to speak for his personal voice. We're thrilled to be able to feature some of Mormonism's um, most vibrant thinking. Uh, he does not speak for the Dialogue Foundation or for BYU or any other organization. Uh, ben Abbott was born in Nashville, Tennessee and grew up in Orem, Utah. He got interested in science and nature from watching TV and mountain biking in the foothills of Mount Tipinogos. Near the end of his senior year at Orem High, he slipped on a pamphlet for the Quinney Scholarship at Utah State University and applied to the Watershed and Earth System Science Program. During his undergraduate studies, he worked as a researcher in Northern Alaska, investigating how fish influence nutrient cycles in Arctic lakes. That led to his PhD at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. 
where he studied permafrost climate feedback using interdisciplinary techniques to quantify how Arctic and boreal or ecosystems respond to climate change. After finishing his PhD in 2014, he worked as a Marie Curie postdoctoral fellow at the French National Science Foundation. While in Western France, he studied the effects of agriculture and urbanization on aquatic and marine ecosystems. Ben is currently an assistant professor in the environmental science and sustainability program at BYU, where he works with a team of creative and passionate students and postdoctoral researchers to understand and encourage sustainability and reciprocity among all members of the human family and all creation. He's particularly interested in social and environmental sustainability, science communication, and exploring the religious and cultural basis for, for ecological stewardship. He and his wife, Rachel Gianni Abbott, and I grew up in Fairbanks and Rachel's family lived just down the hill from me. So I have fond memories of, of them. Uh, they have four children who take after them in their love of animals, TV, and biking. Our music this morning will be What Fair One Is This by Mark Abernathy. This was the first hymn that was published in the, in the Evening and Morning Star and was included in the first LDS hymnal as hymn number three. Uh, our opening prayer today will be given by uh, Ingrid Eliza Abbott. Ingrid is 12 years old and spent her first few years growing up in Alaska, a great place to grow up. When she was five, she moved to France with her family for three years and now lives in Provo, Utah. She loves to draw and paint and play with Lego friends. She loves animals and the earth and wants to protect them both. She has a guinea pig named Aurora, two little brothers and a little sister. And later, our closing prayer will be offered by Chelsea Abrahamian, who is from Los, uh, Los Angeles, California. She's a senior at BYU, majoring in environmental science and minoring in international development and graduating uh, coming up in June. Uh, her undergraduate research has primarily looked at uh, cyanobacteria in the Utah Lake watershed. Uh, she served a mission in Armenia and loves birdwatching and all things related to the ocean, like kayaking, paddleboarding, and scuba diving. What fair ones this from wilderness traveling, looking for Christ, the beloved of her heart. Oh, this is church, the fair bride of the Savior, with which every idol is willing to part. While men in contention are constantly howling, and Babylon's bells are continually tolling, as though all the craft of her merchants was failing, and Jesus was coming to reign on the earth. Blessing, a blessing, Savior is coming. His prophets and pilgrims of old have declared. And Israel, the favored of God, is beginning to come to the feast for the righteous prepared. Old formal professors are crying 
hypocrites say Tis confusion While grace is poured out In a blessed effusion Saints are rejoicing To see priests crap fall And all that will hear them they freely are teaching And thus is the vision of Daniel fulfilling The stone of the mountain will soon fill the earth The stone of the mountain will soon fill the earth Go ahead, Ingrid. Okay. Our dear Heavenly Parents, thank you for this wonderful Sunday today. And um, thank you for the opportunity for us to learn about how we can be better stewards of the earth. And um, think, please open our hearts to be inspired. And again, thank you that we can do this on a beautiful Sunday. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. All right, Ben, all you. Thanks a lot. I'm really grateful to, to be here today and uh, grateful to be with all of you. I can only see a few of you um, on the screen, but I can. Um, I know that the rest of you are there. I uh, just share this real quick. Just to verify, can you see my screen, Rebecca. Okay. Um, I, I felt really humbled uh, this, this last few weeks, um, thinking about the opportunity to talk uh, to you. I don't feel particularly um, well suited uh, or qualified to, um, to give guidance to anyone, especially on spiritual things, right? I have, I feel like I have so much uh, to learn and so much to repent of, <laughs> but, but I felt Ingrid, I thought that you captured, um, the feeling that I've had recently of a need to open my heart and for all of us to open our hearts and try to understand more, uh, what, what the Lord wants us to do in relation to each other and, um, the Lord's creation. And the, as I read through these sections, the, the phrase that stuck with me most actually wasn't stewardship anymore. I, I, I talk about stewardship and think about stewardship all the time, but there was a different phrase, um, be planted in the land of Zion. That stuck with me and seemed to encapsulate a lot of what is being taught in these, um, in these sections. Um, I am constantly amazed by the diversity 
of creation, the physical and the biological and the social world that surrounds us. And before before we get started, I just wanted to uh, thank my wife, Rachel, uh, who has some of the kids with her. Thank my mom, uh, Susan, who has the rest of the kids with her. Uh, they have been my partners. This was a picture from during the, the pandemic uh, when we went out together. But that community, um, I love actually the hymn, For the Beauty of the Earth. I was trying to decide between those two, uh, what fair one is this or For the Beauty of the Earth. For the Beauty of the Earth makes this beautiful round about the beauty around us in, in nature, the beauty around us in cities and agricultural areas, and the beauty of human love. And those are all connected. Um, so I'm grateful for the all of the people who have supported and taught and been patient with me. Um, on the topic of that that hymn that we listened to, uh, here is a picture of W.W. Phelps. Um, and I always thought that if I didn't have to abide by BYU's grooming standards, I might look a little bit like him, <laughs> maybe as handsome. And then also I wanted to give a shout out and thank you to Mark Abernathy who made that recording and allowed us to use it. Um, but I feel like it really encapsulates the excitement of that time in the restoration where everything was new and everything was uh, trying to be figured out. I actually don't think it's that different from our time, right? Where we know a little bit more and yet we still proclaim that many great and important things are, are yet unknown. Um, and in the, in, the, in the dialogue today, by the way, I, I am not a formal person and I really like uh, to be challenged and interrupted. And so please, uh, uh, Rebecca and Chris, I believe you're moderating the comments. Uh, interrupt me at any time uh, if there's a, a comment or, or question, and then I'll try to pause as well to, to allow full participation. But I want to look over what I think are the main points that are being brought up in these sections and try to relate them uh, to, to what I know of, of ecology, the way that the earth system works. And I, of course, view ecology is a really important part of the gospel, right? It's a window into how uh, the Lord has structured creation, including ourselves. Um, so I, I think there are lots of connections there. The first message that I, that I think is um, put forward the most often in these sections is that the Lord hates inequality. The Lord is not tolerant or accepting of, of systems that do not give us opportunities, that do not treat us with equity and with respect. Um, here are just a few, uh, a few verses from these sections. Appoint unto this people their portions, every man equal, according to his family, according to his circumstances. This was, of course, uh, at the time that they were first trying to live the law of consecration, of truly sharing all of their, uh, all of their worldly resources um, and creating a, a unified society. This next one, um, I think, is, is interesting in the way that it blends individual and communal responsibility. Let every man deal honestly and be alike among this people and receive alike that ye may be one, even as I have commanded you. So one of the most, <laughs> most direct uh, commandments from our, our Savior, and 
his mortal ministry was uh, to be one. Otherwise, we are not of his. And here it's saying that if we are not temporally one, if we're not sharing the, the, the resources, the wealthy opportunities that we have, we can't achieve that oneness. So again, uh, a, it's not a spiritual oneness, but a temporal separateness. No, we have to have that unity and sharing. This third one uh, is, is similarly direct. Remember in all things, the poor and the needy, the sick and the afflicted. For he that doeth not these things, the same is not my disciple. So no, there's, there's no um, room for different interpretations. The Lord is not all right if we are living in a way that does not lift up all of his children. Um, there are two longer passages. Uh, I won't read all of these, but in, in section 56, there's this um, um, amazing um, series of verses of, about woe unto the rich that won't give their substance to the poor. Um, and it's really interesting, right? Those riches shall be your lamentation in the day of visitation and of judgment and of indignation. The harvest is past. The summer is ended and my soul is not saved. So we had a, uh, we had a, a stake president in Fairbanks uh, who <laughs> he said one time, you know, I've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse, <laughs> right? When we die, we don't bring our, our things, our possessions along with, with us. And yet this is saying that the way that we treat our possessions, anything that we have control over, this is the time to do that correctly where we have to focus on that. Um, there also is a, a warning to the poor, right? It doesn't say that only the rich are the ones in need to repent. If, if, uh, if the poor uh, are not contrite and humble, then they can also be under condemnation. And yet there's an asymmetry here where the poor are given a blessing, whereas the rich aren't. The rich are only given the warning. So the, the, um, here's the blessing for the poor. Blessed are the poor who are pure in heart, whose hearts are broken and whose spirits are contrite, for they shall see the kingdom of God coming in power and great glory unto their deliverance. For the fatness of the earth shall be theirs. For behold, the Lord shall come, and his recompense shall be with him, and he shall reward every man, and the poor shall rejoice. And then this, this next verse, I don't, I don't quite know how to interpret, but I think it's really beautiful. And that their generation, so speaking of the poor, I presume, and their generations shall inherit the earth from generation to generation forever and ever. Um, so th this is a theme throughout these sections that inheriting the earth, not transcending or leaving uh, or abandoning, but inheriting the earth is the ultimate reward. Um, so the, the last few scriptures on this topic, this first point that the Lord hates inequality is uh, this really interesting um, kind of bait and switch. Actually, when I was, I, I, I listened to these scriptures first when I was preparing rather than read them. Cause I find when I read my eyes dart around everywhere. So I was listening to the recording and I thought there was a mistake when it got to this section. I thought, Oh, it, my, my, uh, it didn't, we don't have CDs anymore, so it couldn't have skipped, but the, the Wi-Fi must have gone out for a second. But here's, here's the first part of this, um, this section. That a feast of fat things might be prepared for the poor. Yea, a feast of fat things of wine on the bleas well refined, that the earth may know that the mouths of the prophets shall not fail. Yea, a supper of the house of the Lord, well prepared, unto which all nations shall be invited. 
First, the rich and the learned, the wise and the noble. That's where there was a little glitch. And I thought, wait, this can't be right. I thought that the first shall be last, right? Then you read on and it says, and after that cometh the day of my power. Then shall the poor, the lame, and the blind, and the deaf come into the marriage of the Lamb and partake of the supper of the Lord, prepared for the great day to come. So actually, though the rich and the learned, the wise and the noble, got there first, that was before the Lord opened the meal. It was before the day of the Lord's power. Uh, They took what they thought that they needed or wanted, um, but it wasn't it wasn't the Lord doing that. And the, this phrase here, a supper of the house of the Lord, I think is really interesting. What is the house of the Lord if the rich and the learned, the wise and the noble got there first? Well, I think the house of the Lord is clearly the earth. And so they've taken what they wanted. And then at the day of the coming of the power of God is when the poor and the humble shall receive uh, their portion fully. So if this is a clear point, my, my question to us or the point of discussion is, how, how are we doing regarding equality and inequality? We can think of that personally. Um, how are we doing in our own homes, in our own way of viewing the world? How are we doing um, in our church groups, our congregations, our stakes and wards? How are we doing in our cities and states and nations? I know it takes a minute for the uh, questions and comments to come in, um, but this is a, this is a question that's not rhetorical. I I am asking it of myself and often feel haunted and and really troubled and under condemnation, thinking about am I using the the abundant resources we we like to we like to not think of ourselves as rich, and yet anyone whose household makes the equivalent of twenty thousand U.S. dollars or more a year is in the top ten percent of earners globally. That's not an individual income of twenty thousand dollars. That's the whole household, twenty thousand dollars or more, is in that top ten percent globally, and. That top 10% is uh, responsible for more than 50% of the consumption of the things of the earth. So this is an interesting concordance with what we know of global ecology right now, that it is not that there are too many people, the human family is not too abundant. It is that we are not sharing the resources that we have. Certain people are consuming much more than uh, the earth can sustain. Any responses or questions or comments to that idea of how are we doing regarding equality? So we're still waiting for folks um, to come in, but um, I'm so struck in thinking about the ways that Doctrine and Covenants kind of identifies this ecology um, and just from the scripture that's still up here, that there's a, you know, understanding that the rich and the learned, the wise and the noble, those who, who have, 
um, you know, they're going to take um, and, and that there is a condemnation, right? There is a warning of that and that um, God is, is clearly identifying that that's not what his plan is, that that's not how he's set up the earth and the human family to operate. Um, Someone's asking about um, kind of how the system, how maybe you think about um, the system of capitalism fitting in uh, and uh, another comment here about uh, it requires a transformation of using and seeing people as things, resources to fulfill our ego needs um, rather than kind of the way that God uh, sees people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, in response to that first uh, comment of how does this fit into capitalism, n- none of us individually determine what uh, government or what economic system we exist in. Right, so that does go beyond what any of us can control on a short time scale. However, we should absolutely be involved civically and be thinking about how can we transform our society to uh, align more and work within this really clear guidance of it's just not acceptable to allow anyone to not have what they need. Um, but we all have control over how we use our resources. That's maybe too absolute and extreme, but we have a much larger amount of control over what we do with um, the things that we have. And I've been amazed to see, uh, I I haven't seen much of a correlation between how much we have and how willing we are to share it and give it. Some of the most most open and welcoming and generous people that I know are some of those who who have the least, at least in terms of the world. Um, so, um, you know, observations that the disparity between rich and poor is actually wide widening and so many are unable to have just basic needs met, uh, and an observation that there are so many, um, people, um, at this time. And, and you're suggesting that, um, this isn't kind of, shouldn't be a problem, right? That the, that the flora and fauna of the earth is struggling to survive as well, but, uh, but maybe that's, you know, not, uh, you know, necessary. Uh, Absolutely right. The, there's a really common thought of, okay, to provide for the human family, it has to be at the expense of the um, ecosystems, right, of the earth. And I just point towards this, um, this middle part of this passage, a supper of the house of the Lord. We're not consuming the house of the Lord. Right? If you were to go to the temple, we're, we're more familiar with that. We're thinking of it that way, right? We treat the temple with a huge amount of, of sacredness, uh, which, which well we should, right? Um, but if we were to go to the temple and then bring home the, the furniture or bring home the, the decorations, that, I don't think that anyone would, re, would think that that was appropriate. Similarly, if we are consuming the earth, then that can't be in line with God's will. We want, we should be using the gifts of the earth, what is offered to us, what the earth is producing in a truly sustainable and renewable way to, to meet the needs of, of the Lord's family. I, I don't think it's reasonable at all to assume, oh, the Lord just didn't think this through. And the only way to fulfill this commandment is by destroying 
um, the, the creation of which we are a part, right? So it, it, isn't, it isn't an inevitable um, consequence. And I'll try, to, um, I'll try to integrate more how we can do that at the end of this dialogue. What are the ways that we could and can provide completely for the whole human family without harming all of the other creations? Right. There's some comments too about like feeling so helpless, right? About how do you even begin to start as a, you know, just one small person. There's also observations about um, that, that we tend to define ourselves by conception and that this yeah. uh, helps to generate um, and perpetuate inequality um, and competition that, that we're dividing and pitting ourselves against each other. And that also puts us, uh, I would add in competition, like against the earth. Yeah. Thank you so much for that comment. Yes. When, uh, I don't know if anyone had, we, it, it is so easy. I mean, consumption is just all around us and so many things are becoming cheaper. Uh, I had this experience. I've had this experience several times. I'm embarrassed to say a package arrives at my house. I can't, I have no recollection of ordering anything, right? Like our consumption is so casual and so many things. And it's like some uh, string of Christmas lights that changes colors. Like what, what, how did I ever think that that was something that I, that I should be using what truly are sacred gifts um, to consume? rather than yeah, focusing nice. on what it, what can serve and, and uplift our, our community. Ben, the, now the comments are coming rolling in, but I'm going to, I'm going to jump in with a, a comment, I guess. I'm struck, I'm really struck by the shift from uh, the house of the Lord as a temple to the house of the Lord as the earth. I think that's a powerful insight, and it leads to thinking of the earth as something to be consumed because the second coming is upon us and yeah. we will just use it up and then Christ will return yep. um, to a place. And I think this is a part of the LDS Mormon Joseph Smith vision is the earth as the, as the house of the Lord, as yeah. a place to, um, well, uh, this this will go to a sustainability kind of con uh, conversation, I think. But that's as a as a place to preserve and to um, enhance, as opposed to use yeah. up. Yeah, and I'll throw in another uh, thought that's here on chat, where uh, they're observing that their original commandment to Adam and Eve was to multiply and replenish the earth, and it's not just you know themselves, but but it's the earth. It's this. Uh, you know, house of the Lord yeah. uh, and this larger ecosystem that, yeah, Absolutely. not use, replenish. <laughs> so the, the, the earth is the celestial kingdom, right? And, and maybe that's one interpretation of the, the last, the last uh, verses that we read of the, um, their generations shall inherit the earth. That's, that's a way of simply saying they shall inhabit the celestial kingdom, which literally will be the dwelling place of God. And, and so as sacred as our temples are, and, and I, I was really struck as a youth being taught, hey, temples exist on both sides of the veil, both on earth and in heaven. And yet when we think about what is heaven, where is heaven? 
and we know that it is here. It no longer is about, okay, it's all going to be destroyed. It's like, no, we need to work towards that place where we've created a global Zion community where there is no poor, uh, where there is no exploitation or extortion among humans and among all of God's creation. But I do find it very, uh, very helpful to the, the, I think that our community has really excelled in reminding us of the sacredness and importance of our bodies, which are the temple of the spirit and of the physical temple itself, right? Which is the object of, um, or the, not the object, but the, the way that we achieve many of our goals in worship. And uh, I'll come back. There's, Chris, there's a very direct verse in here about that mentality of, oh, it's all, it's, it's going to pass away so we can use it up, uh, right? And, and actually George Hanley has a great comment here. Would we ever apply that reasoning to our body, which is going to die? as well, right? Oh, my body will pass away and be resurrected. It doesn't matter if I smoke a few cigarettes or uh, <laughs> do any of that. No, we never would. But we've applied that reasoning of, oh, it doesn't matter what we do to the earth um, in a very naive way and destructive way. So as you bring in um, kind of this analogy of the temple too, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, Joseph Smith talking about how the temple and if we're thinking about the temple, maybe in terms of the house, the house of the Lord and a, and a symbol for the earth, that, that the temple was designed for, for all people and that he envisioned it as, you know, people, all races, all languages, all people coming to this place on, uh, and it's on terms of equality, right? That they're enjoying the house of the Lord. I, I, I love that universal invitation as well. Isn't, isn't that amazing? And indeed, we know that um, uh, that, that is the case, that all who desire, um, all who wish, all, all who want uh, will, will be welcome there. That's th this beautiful idea of true, truly universal salvation, right? Only those who, who choose, who do not desire that once they have a fullness of truth revealed unto them um, won't be there, not because they aren't invited, but because the, we respect their choice completely different than a view of somehow it being protected and kept out and only super special VIPs uh, able to go there. Yeah. Well, I want to let you move on with another part that you prepared, but just uh, another comment that fits with this is um, the temple spends about a third of the time teaching about creation and yeah. the beauty of the earth with before people even get to it. And that should tell us about something about the sacredness of the earth and about um, the earth as the house of the Lord, as this larger ecosystem that we are just a, a small part of. Yeah. Thanks for that comment, Rebecca. I, uh, as you said in the introduction, TV is where I first really gained an obsession with nature, right? Like watching National Geographic and the TV show Nature and, and seeing all these stories of animals and plants and ecosystems and I remember um, I didn't feel a gap about that at church. We just never talked about that at church. But when I went to the temple for the first time, I remember thinking, wow, here is the teaching of the importance of our uh, fellow brothers and sisters beyond the human family, right? We, we're spending, we're viewing images and listening to descriptions of them over and over, not just, not just once or twice. It's really, it's really striking in that temple ceremony. 
The, uh, the second point that I find really emphasized in these scriptures is um, that the land is a living thing, and it's also a personal thing. So the, the words land and earth are mentioned 85 times in, in sections 51 to 59. They are talked about much more than any individual human even the, the, actually, I think the prophets only, uh, prophet Joseph Smith's only mentioned once. And there it's a warning that, hey, if you don't follow these instructions, uh, you will fall just like anyone else. But the land and the earth are mentioned over and over again. Now, some of those mentions of land are very uh, um, associated with property, right? So that's, that's different. Hey, we need to secure legal, um, legal access to certain areas. But most of it is not. Um, it's really clear that the land is inspirited that it has a, an awareness and um, that it's also reserved and anointed. These are terms that are used, uh, those that the Lord is doing directly. And then if you go uh, farther, you see that we are actually called to consecrate and honor and protect uh, the land. And I think this is so interesting because I, even as, a, as an ecologist, I sometimes start to think of the earth is just, um, you know, a bunch of terrestrial and aquatic ecosystems. And I forget the unique uh, feeling and spirit of individual places. And so my, my second kind of question for the group is, where, what places um, have you been that have a personal meaning? What is the feeling when you're there? You know, what's a place that has uh, consec been consecrated for your benefit and blessing? What is a place that you have blessed and consecrated? And um, this is a picture from, from San Pete County in Utah, a place that my one, uh, one side of my grandparents and uh, my wife's mother's family are from, uh, a juniper tree out among these, these rocks. And it's a place with a very distinct feeling when I go there it's not just another place, but I have a connection. I, I sense, I feel the spirit of that place. And that's such a different view as well, because you no longer can allow certain areas to just be sacrificed. Oh no, it's okay. We'll, we'll let that area just be uh, destroyed. There are plenty of other areas that can have, no, you, you realize the importance of that place. Um, there, there's a very interesting and specific call. Uh, we are called to bear witness of the land where the Lord shall sit. And that's speaking first of independence, uh, the place that we believe the, the, um, the new, new Zion will be, uh, the new, new Jerusalem will be built. Uh, we're called to honor and create it. But again, we can broaden that out and think of, well, of course, the earth is the footstool of the Lord. That is the place where the Lord will fit, uh, will sit. And so, if, if we take this seriously, it's our responsibility to, to bear witness and protect all of the Lord's creation. The last comment here is you think about places that are important to you. And this one, I don't know if we need to go through all of those things um, together unless there's a general comment, but um, there is this idea that was really striking to me as a child of uh, the wilderness blossoming as a rose, right? And it comes from Isaiah. Uh, and there are two questions here. This is actually, these are questions that um, Joseph Smith was asking before one of those sections was revealed. And the question is, when will the wilderness blossom as the rose? And when will Zion be built up in her glory? And I grew up in, I was born in Nashville, Tennessee, a very humid and wet place. I grew up in Utah, a very uh, arid and dry place. 
And I always had thought about water and a change of vegetation when talking about blooming, the wilderness blooming or blossoming as a rose. And yet here, um, independence is a place that's very green. Wasn't, it wasn't about a change in the land. It wasn't about uh, reworking or restructuring the ecosystem. It was about the change, the interior change among the saints of God. When will Zion be built up? So for the wilderness, quote unquote, to blossom as a rose, it's not anything wrong with the wilderness or the, the ecosystem. It's something in us that needs to change. And I actually would put forward that this could mean uh, wherever we live on earth, becoming into alignment uh, with the, the constraints and limits of the place that we live. Uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer has this beautiful invitation for all of us to become native to the place where we live, right? We, ca we can't decide whether or not we are indigenous, whether our people originated from that place, but wherever we live, we can learn from it and choose to live. And um, indeed Brigham Young said, that the earth abides a celestial law and we should seek to abide the same law rather than bend it to our will. Um, th then this, the, at the end of the, this section, we're given this commandment to be planted in the land of our inheritance and that that is indeed the ultimate reward. And I think that that is such a beautiful metaphor uh, that I'll try to dig into. Uh, I didn't realize dig into is another planting metaphor, right? Later on. This is, um, this is a picture of, of one place that's really important and sacred to me. This is the, the foothills of uh, Mount Timpanogos. And this is a picture that I took uh, last uh, October. And if, if you didn't live in the valley, you may not know there was a, a, a wildfire that was started at the Orem police range that burned 3000 acres. And uh, I had biked on this the week before and came back and it looked like the moon. It was, it was really astounding to see the level of devastation. And also, well, I'll, I'll come back to that because as an, as an ecosystem ecologist, disturbance is a part of the Lord's system that, that's crucial. We wouldn't have any of the ecosystems that we know and love without uh, the natural types of disturbance and also human involvement. Uh, we now know that the majority of the Earth's surface has been uh, in interaction with and highly modified by humans for 12,000 years or more. There, this paper came out just this summer, uh, that 75% of the Earth's surface the ecosystems that we see, they're not natural in the sense of not, not having humans, but they are natural in the sense of including humans. And so when I saw this, it was really difficult to see the destruction. And yet I also recognized that that wildfire and disturbance is a part of a process of renewal. So I'll, I'll pause there for, for a moment, just in case, uh, again, don't feel, it can be very personal to share these places, these sacred places that have been meaningful to us. But if anyone does have a comment or question to, along those lines, happy to hear it. So a, a number of people have shared, uh, some have said, uh, you know, there's not one place that they would identify, but they've had many moments running in the mountains where they've had deep spiritual experiences. And I think that um, you know, that that speaks to the being native to the place and seeking that kind of communion um, as part of seeking, seeking the Lord. Uh, 
someone has suggested, I, I drive into my beautiful Oregon from Idaho and the first glimpse of the sun glistening on the Columbia River is this kind of yeah. deeply um, spiritual experience. Um, I imagine that, that you and I and Rachel and your kids share some kind of affinity for um, for interior Alaska. And uh, every time I fly home and, and there's just this vast expanse of, of wilderness, I feel um, in awe and at home and like yeah. there's beauty and goodness. <laughs> Absolutely. I, there's another comment I attached myself to, but uh, uh, I had that experience in the boundary waters after a long and difficult portage. I think there's an interesting theme there of uh, wilderness in particular, including some amount of struggle, some amount of effort to, to get there, to survive. I, um, I, looking here uh, before I, jump in myself, I think of, um, I think of uh, the first time I came up to Half Dome in Yosemite and um, what happened to me uh, and, at, as I saw that from a, enough of a distance to get the whole perspective was the feeling, I am glad, I give thanks that I have lived to have this experience. Thank you for those really personal and sacred uh, experiences. I, I, uh, all, all of the ones that we've mentioned so far have been in a relatively non-human modified environment, right? We were talking about kind of nature as something separate from people. And I, I wanted to share one observation that my son Caspian has taught me. And a commonality between all of these experiences that we've shared is that we noticed the beauty around us. That doesn't mean that there's not beauty in other places, but maybe that struggle, the fact that we expended resources and time to get there made us more attentive to how, just how beautiful and moving and powerful that place was. But what, what Caspian uh, does is he sees, he sees details. You know, and this is part maybe of as a child being closer to the ground, but yesterday he, uh, came running up to me and I thought something was wrong because he was speaking so loudly. <laughs> For those of you who know Caspian, he, he speaks loudly a lot, but uh, he had noticed that there were two colors of box elder bug in our backyard and that some of them were red and some of them were primarily black. And sure enough, I looked it up and there are two species of box elder bug. I've smelled and been bothered by box elder bugs for so long, but I've never seen the beauty. And when you look at the beauty right there in our own backyard, um, it's, it's really powerful. So may we all pay closer attention to the beauty that's around us all the time. And then also remember that the built environment, the sometimes called anthropomass, all the things that we've built also are a part of creation for we are a part of creation. We are a, a part of these ecosystems that is, that can be positive. And so likewise, I heard someone say how important, um, the dorm was where they lived. This was Helaman Halls. They went to BYU and how that had been a location that had been really sacred and important to them. And that is a part of the earth, right? It is a gift. It's made up of cinder blocks and cinder blocks, of course, uh, are artificial, but they're made of elements which come from the earth, right? Part of that gift. So it doesn't have to only be pristine places that we have these connections. Um, 
Oh, I didn't realize I'd put this here, but uh, this is that quote from Brigham Young, that the earth is very good in and of itself and has abided a celestial law. So isn't that interesting? The Lord or the earth in the past tense has already abided. It's not something on its own that needs to, to repent. It has already, and I would say does already abide that law. We should not despise it nor desire to leave it, but rather desire and strive to obey the same law that the earth abides. And that's just a complete reversal of how we approach so much about the world around us. Um, and then there's this beautiful section in Job, uh, Job 12, 7 through 10, that says the same thing. You know, learn, uh, ask the beasts, and they shall uh, teach thee. And, and then it goes through all these different examples. So this idea of the earth uh, as a model for us. Um, I don't want to touch too, too much on this next point, except to say there's this really interesting tension in these sections about how should we run the community that we now have. You know, before this time, there weren't enough saints to really worry too much about how do we share resources? How do we organize ourselves? This comes back to the question about, you know, capitalism and government. How can we um, share these things in a way that... Um, that reliably meets the needs of the whole group. And I do not know how to interpret the message in this section. So for example, here's one. Uh, I'll, put, I'll put the comments that, that lean towards centralized on the left and the ones towards decentralized on the right. Let them journey from thence, preaching the word by the way, saying none other things than that which was written, uh, which the prophets and apostles have written. So very controlled and centralized, right? The prophets and, the, uh, prophets and apostles give us the message, we simply spread it out. That's a totally centralized um, command and control version. And yet, what does it say after the comma? And that which is taught them by the comforter through the prayer of faith. So th this is really important. And you could apply that in two ways. You first could say, it has to be written by the prophets and then it has to be confirmed, right? That's one interpretation. But I, give, I, I tend to think that this is saying, Okay, by the prophets and anything that has been impressed upon you, um, but through through personal revelation. Uh, this other idea, it must needs be that they be organized according to my laws. If otherwise, they will be cut off. Very direct. It has to be in God's way, right? Centralized. And then scripture just a few verses away, I grant unto this people a privilege of organizing themselves according to my laws. Much more consensual and distributed let each of them govern themselves. Um, and then there's this terrifying uh, and embarrassing specificity in these scriptures, right? Like you never could have fallen asleep in their equivalent of general conference because you were always worried that you were going to be called out for a personal sin. And so that here's what, let my servant Lyman White beware for Satan desireth to sift him as, cha as chaffed. Very direct, right? The Lord telling us what to do. And then several times there's this term, uh, this uh, this this phrase from time to time, so we're most of the time we need to be using our own um, understanding and uh, seeking and judgment independently, and then knowledge will be given from on high from time to time. So again, this real contrast of a centralized network versus a distributed one. I won't take the time to read this, but this is the most confusing one of all, I think. Let no man think he is ruler, but let God uh, rule him that judgeth. And then there are like three little clarifications because the Lord realizes how confusing this is. Who? Wait a minute. Who's in charge? Is it one 
person that we look to. And th there's a there's a really important parallel in in ecology and biology where animals. So I've shown a picture of a cow here uh, that was taking a, a soil sample, and this cow was very interested in what I was doing. Came right up in my face. Uh, animals have a centralized control system. We have a, a, a brain that sends out um, messages that controls the subsidiary parts of our body. And they all are important, you know, as the Apostle Paul says, the foot and the eye, all those parts are important, but they are subservient to the brain. Plants, and especially microorganisms, have a completely different system. Plants don't have a way of communicating from one point to the whole organism. They don't have a nervous system at all. And it is a distributed decision-making process where the leaf says, uh, the apical meristem at the end of the, at the end of the branch says, okay, am I in the light? If so, I'll grow more here. And another branch says, am I in the shade? And if so, it'll drop its leaves. And it doesn't have any centralized place that's giving the command. It's really interesting how these two systems, they're in an, um, and I said, this is one, one final definition from ecology. Community, the term community has to mean multiple organisms, multiple species living together. If you're just talking about one species, that's not a community at all. That's only a population. And I think that similarly, none of us can live alone, include our species is wholly dependent on, you know, we're what we call heterotrophs. We eat, we have to eat and kill things to survive. Autotrophs can capture that from the um, energy from the sun and from chemicals. So we have to live in community. And anytime that we start thinking, oh yeah, I'm independent. I can do this on my own. We're just not living according to the laws of the earth, which say we all are in community. And that's the final, um, the, the uh, sorry, I have one more after this, but the second, the penultimate point from this that we, we have to there's a there's a focus on community, and a, a condemnation of times that people are thinking of themselves, and the the most common condemnation is of pride and selfishness, and it's given to many people individually, um, and I, I tried to think is there a tension here, but it's not. It's really really direct. Uh, the Lord simply says, we have to think about the community. And the question that that brings up in me is, in our ministering within and beyond the church, how can we make it less about ourselves? You know, we, we of course, act. We are animals. We have a centralized control system, a brain that's, that's, making, that's uh, controlling the parts of our body. We have to act on our own, but the focus must be on the community rather than just how can I further my career or how can I provide for myself or even those immediately around me. We need to have that focus uh, on the community. And then the, the last thing, the last tension that I think is truly a tension, which again, I don't know how to, um, how to solve, is this, this balance between patience and action. So some very well-known scriptures on patience and tribulation occur in these sections, right? He that is faithful in tribulation, the reward of the same is greater in the kingdom of heaven. For after much tribulation come blessings. Be subject to the powers that be until he reigns, whose right it is to reign and subdues all enemies under his feet. So these are really, um, 
I guess an extreme interpretation could almost be fatalistic. Like these things are going to happen. We need to endure and bear. And yet what also do we find at the end of this, these sections, this famous set of verses on, it is not meet that I should command in all things. He that is compelled in all things, the same is a slothful and not a wise servant. Wherefore he receiveth no reward. Men should be engage, anxiously engaged in a good cause and do many things of their own free will and bring to pass much righteousness for the power is in them. All of a sudden, this is, this is really different. This isn't waiting for things to get better. This is not waiting for permission or for anyone to tell you. This is following um, like that leaf, right? That senses that something's not right and then responds. It's not waiting for some signal from a central brain. Um, it's simply doing what needs to be done. And, and so as we are facing social and environmental problems, which I think are the same. How can we balance the, the beauty and acceptance of patience in tribulation, which I, which I think is a, a, an, an amazingly comforting principle, right? When there is a problem that we cannot solve, that is beyond us, there are very few times that I felt the spirit more strongly, God's love more strongly than when I have simply surrendered and said, okay. And yet that can't become complacency where we are just waiting for someone else to solve the problem. You know, when we take that community view of us living in the house of the Lord and being a part of the, the, the community that lives there and then acting. So I don't, I don't know. <laughs> the answer there, but that is my question. How have you found, how have you reconciled these two concepts? And I'll pause there because I've been blabbering for a long time. So um, a, a very quick comment, not expecting God to fix things that we are able to fix ourselves. Um, and I think, and I think part of it has to do with a, a recognition that we can fix some things, right. <laughs> and acceptance yeah. that there are things that, that, that we can do. Um, uh, another person on chat says, uh, maybe they don't reconcile. They are the call to live with the yin and the yang of life and knowing when each is appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and as you're describing the, the kind of tree that, or like the central system versus the kind of, you know, not acting in concert so much. And then the scripture that, um, that, that comes up where um, how we are, the, the power is in us, that we have that, if we're connecting to the power of God, right into the spirit of the Lord, then, then we have that kind of community that larger consciousness and um and can see and feel better how we can act in ways that um will kind of move us toward um caring for the house yeah. of the lord and not just ourselves yeah that that's such an interesting point rebecca the the two the two conditions over here on the uh these anxiously engaged scriptures 
are that we should be anxiously engaged, right? We should be watching. We should be looking for ways to contribute, for ways to personally repent and help our community repent and move forward. But what should we be anxiously engaged in? A good cause. Because I find as somebody who can be obsessive and distracted pretty easily, especially in our modern world, I can get anxiously engaged in like getting my bicycle tuned perfectly. And I can find myself spending hours into the night working on anxiously engaged in something that's not a good cause. <laughs> I mean, it's an okay cause. It's not a bad cause, but it certainly probably isn't the most needful thing. Thinking about my local community from my family onto the whole human family. But I also appreciate that the comment about that not all of these things reconcile and, and seeing that, that tension and then asking ourselves, which is required of me now in these circumstances? I mean, imagine how that must have been. Uh, and actually, I was having a conversation yesterday with um, uh, Andy Pitcher Davis about after a wildfire, her, she had a, a really important place to her recently be destroyed by a wildfire or renewed however you want to call it. And um, there is a tendency when something changes, especially when it's something that is violent and difficult and painful, that we have to respond with action. And we see that in, there's a policy to reseed these wild, these uh, burn scars, like, Hey, nature got hurt. We've got to go fix it. Let's put some seeds there. That's probably going to make things better. And it's actually based on kind of questionable science. Uh, and also many times the seeds that we put out are not uh, native plants. And you can cause damage by that kind of impatient reaction. The, the, the feeling that I have to do something because there's a problem. Um, if we don't have wisdom in that, if we're not informed, if we haven't sat and listened and thought and discussed, then we can cause more damage than, than good. Now I know that we're coming, that we're at, at the hour. Is it okay for me to talk about things for another five minutes before transitioning or do you want me to cut off? Okay. Um, then I'll talk about two more things and then we, then we can have it be more of a dialogue. Uh, there, there is this amazing section, section 59 of course is maybe the most, most well-known in this. And there is what I call the better 10 commandments that are given. And these better 10 commandments are first of all, better because there aren't 10 of them. 10 is so hard. It's hard to remember 10. And I don't know props to anybody who, who has all of the 10 memorized, but I always end up missing one of them. Now there are only six, depending on how you cut it. Um, and, and they start with the two most important, right? When Christ was asked um, by a very detail oriented student, what is going to be on the test? What's the most important thing that we remember? Christ said that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So those are the first two, the most important ones. And then uh, after that, there, there are some specific ones that mainly draw on the, the original 10 commandments. But there's this beautiful um, promise that inasmuch as you do these things with thanksgiving, with cheerful hearts and countenances, the fullness of the earth is yours. And so the, the concept of um, 
obtaining the riches of the earth. It's, it's interesting. I think if you have these attitudes, it's not about obtaining those things. That's not the reason why. The fact that this is only offered after we have brought our lives into alignment with these better 10 commandments to me shows that um, we are aspiring to attain what the earth already has and provides as we become uh, a part, a better part of, of the system of the earth. So we abide by those principles and then we attain the fullness of the earth. And so this final idea is uh, I, I came into this thinking about stewardship and stewards. And there is a very important verse here, right? Whoso is found a faithful, a just, and a wise steward. So three conditions on there. Faithful, I think, is about our intent. Just is about thinking about the community and the group. And then wise is about, are we actually acting with correct principles? Are we just scattering seeds because it seems like it needs to be done? Or have we learned from the earth, including human society, to do things correctly? So if we do all of those things, if we are faithful, just, and wise steward, <clears throat> we shall enter into the joy of his Lord and shall inherit eternal life. I think it's really beautiful and complete. Um, but that's the only time that the word steward or stewardship is mentioned in these scriptures. Except for in the headings. In the headings, it shows up several times, right? The little summaries. The term that comes up over and over again, more than half a dozen times, is plant and planted. And so I just picked a few of them here, that you may be planted in the land of your inheritance to do this work, to plant them in their inheritance, be planted in this place, be planted in the land of Zion. And that really got me thinking again of plants. I'm, I'm biased towards plants, but um, when you are planted, you are in communion with the world around you. You are depending on it. You're not, uh, often with steward, I think about somebody left on vacation and, and uh, left me to check their mailbox, right? Like something physical that I need to take care of uh, that like the, the parable of the talents, right? Okay, I need, I have these coins that are gonna be there. Got to return them at the end, those, those ideas. And yet uh, a plant is to be planted, to be a seedling rather than a steward, is to, to utterly depend on the conditions around you, to also accept that you can't just walk somewhere else, you can't lift up, right? As you develop that root system, it's permanent and it's in the place that you are. And I'm not, of course, talking physically, we're, not, we're animals, not plants, so we can move. Um, but that, I, that idea, that concept of being a seedling, I think, is really powerful. And, of course, we see that same uh, metaphor in Jacob, where the Lord is the, the gardener. We are the gardened. We are those being taken care of. Um, so stewardship is about accountability, responsibility, control. Those are, those are important concepts. But I would put forward that seedlingship is about participation and codependence and reciprocity and partic full participation in the community and a, a recognition that because not everyone is like me, because we have autotrophs like plants and um, cyanobacteria, because we have decomposers who are recycling the dead and, and releasing those nutrients, because we have consumers 
who are um, keeping the, the plants in balance, we can thrive together. That's a, that's a very different metaphor um, that, I think, that I think is supported by these, um, by these sections. Um, I promised to, to tell you, uh, and I think it's a really important thing, how can we then live in a way that meets the needs of the human family without um, degrading the house of the Lord, the earth? And uh, there are, uh, I'm just going to skip to one really kind of boring scientific slide. This is a picture of uh, land use in the United States. And so this, the different colors show different types of land use. It's not showing where it occurs. It's been regrouped together so that you can see how big the different types of land use are. Um, really cool. First of all, look down here. You can see like golf. This is all of the golf courses in the U.S. <laughs> um, but the, the, I'm going to emphasize a few here. This yellow, this is the land that we're using not to feed people, but to feed livestock cows, goats, chickens. Um, it, there's this amazing thing that happens. And of course we read in section 89, that we should be eating a plant-based diet unless we don't, unless we are in a time of, of famine, unless we have to. And actually it says that two times in that I encourage you to reread the word of wisdom. It's not, it, it'll, it has three conditions once and then only one condition the second time. Um, if we were to move, if we were to live more in accordance with the word of wisdom, there would be so much more land for all of the other parts of our community, all the other creatures, plant, animal, microbe uh, that are out there. And indeed, if we look at the, the energy needed to support a person, a mainly plant-based diet requires only 15% of the energy of the typical American diet. That means that we could feed nine people for the land and nutrients and water that currently is feeding one person simply because of how we're choosing to, to feed ourselves. Then there are all these other benefits with health. So yes, we're a part of a system and we can feel helpless, but there are things that we can do. Now, the other, the other point is um, we've been commanded the, to, to love our neighbor and to love the Lord and to not use resources by um, exploitation. Uh, and I just forgot the word. It'll come back to me in a second. Um, this is in section 89, um, but there, we have, we have a huge problem right now, uh, environmental pollution, which is an issue that we often don't think about in, in terms of the gospel. It is, uh, uh, it is causing one in four deaths globally. Our mistreatment of the environment is causing, um, 15 million deaths a year. And this is just a graph that my student Isabella Rigo uh, put together in a recent publication showing how that compares to other things that we recognize are a part of our stewardship, of our discipleship, right? If we're thinking about avoiding wars, 200,000 people on average die from, from wars, um, homicides and domestic violence, malnutrition, even really important issues like suicide. These are vanishingly small compared to the the human lives that are being cut short by our lack of attention, our lack of living in line with God's will. Most of these deaths are associated with the use of fossil fuels. It's pollution from our cars, from our furnaces, from the, uh, the, the meat and dairy that we're eating. Um, 
it is within our power to greatly reduce and very quickly um, move away from that. So the actually Chelsea, who will be giving the closing prayer is leading an interesting study on the, the, the plausibility of, of removing fossil fuels completely from the global economy and how that could both lift people out of poverty, providing cheaper, uh, cleaner energy, and also stop this, this horrible thing that is going on. Um, so my, my invitation and, and warning to all of us, myself included, is we need to be thinking and be aware of how our life is affecting the environment because we cannot fulfill either of the two great commandments without fulfilling our environmental um, responsibilities. If we are polluting the environment around us, that uh, we are not, we're not loving our neighbor and we're not honoring um, our creator. Thank you very much. I say these things uh, humbly, and I hope that they have come across. Um, you felt the spirit. I, I have felt the spirit from your comments. I say this in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ben. Uh, I want to also, um, as we kind of do a little bit more discussion before we officially wrap up, I want to invite Chelsea and Ingrid as well. If you would like to um, make comments and, and enter into this discussion, that would be great. Ben, I'm so, uh, I think that so often that, uh, that we, we do, we see ourselves as the gardener, right? Rather than um, the Lord is the gardener and we don't, and this causes us to, um, you know, see ourselves as above rather than um, as part of and not separated from um, everyone and everything else that's part of this garden. Uh, and I loved um, thinking about seedlingship <laughs> rather than stewardship. And it also uh, kind of spark, you know, reminding me of another metaphor that's used in the scriptures. And that is that we're part of the body of Christ um, and that 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 we're just one part, you know, <laughs> we're part of that. And and that um, other living things are also part of that and that and that it works together um, when we see ourselves as, as, as part of the body of Christ and not as kind of the driving force. Um, anyway, just some thoughts I've been having as you're, uh, as you're talking here. Um, some new, lots of thanks for, um, you know, so much, so much to think about. Um, Chris. Yeah, I think I, I'd like to see, all these comments, but I, I'm really struck by the by the shift, and and it's the slide you showed with the cows on the left and the tree on the right, um, uh, the seedling comment as well. But the the cows on the left and the tree on the right caused me to think. You know, I I have oriented all of my thinking because I'm on the. I'm on the fauna side of that, right? <laughs> yeah. I've, I've oriented all of my thinking about, I mean, we human beings, we animals have plants to use. The, 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 the plant life is a part of the consumable, not a part of creation. And, and just flipping that thinking to think that the, the, the plant life is a different structure. It's a different organization. It's not the central nervous system, but it is part of 
creation. And if you, I mean, you, you caused me to step back and say, no, if I'm God putting this together, that's all part of the system. It's not just about man getting to do things. It's a whole interwoven network system that I'm trying to create. Um, all the parts of it that you're, I mean, the one phrase, both, both putting the cows in the trees and then saying, um, what was the, what was the word it, community in term instead of population. Yeah. Um, the, the in, in that, that's what strikes me most powerfully in this whole is just flipping that thinking um, makes a huge difference. Thank you, Chris. The, the thing that I would add as well, those decentralized networks are much more resilient to change, right? An animal, if, uh, if that nerve gets cut, then the, then the whole creature dies. And when you have a distributed system where each person, each node, each participant is enabled to act, then you can have a, a tiny twig of a tree that breaks off and then it can re-sprout and grow into something new. And so I think it is really, um, the, and Re Rebecca, your comment made it clear to me, where we, where we clearly should seek to be centralized is by tapping into our, our great leader and king, right? The savior. And, and we can do that through the spirit, which thankfully is a nervous system that's not sensitive to being physically cut. Um, but where we need to be decentralized and each be thinking, and actually uh, I think of that conference talk of lifting where we stand, right? Where you, where you don't have to have somebody who's saying, okay, everybody do this. And here's what you have to do. Here are the 12 things throughout the day. You know, each of us need to be looking around and saying, how can we participate? How can we listen, right? Because again, that idea of it doesn't always mean doing something. Sometimes it means not doing something. All right. Um, well, I'm looking at the time now and thinking maybe we should officially close, but thank you so much, Ben. Um, as uh, one of our attendees notes, we feel like we've uh, been listening to Samuel up on the wall, <laughs> uh, helping us to kind of have a new framework and calling us uh, to repentance and to and to community, and to and to the blessings of uh, of the kingdom of the Lord. So, thank you so much, uh, Chelsea. Uh, will uh, say our our closing prayer, and then I just want to invite everyone back in three weeks. There's a fifth Sunday in in May, so we'll be back with dialogue, gospel study on June 13th with Rachel Mumford. Our dear Father in heaven, we're so grateful to be gathered together on this virtual format to discuss the Doctrine and Covenants and Thy Word. We're so grateful for everyone who organized this event and for Ben who shared his, his thoughts and experiences about Thy Gospel and about the environment with us. Please help us to understand how we can better live in accordance with thy gospel and in harmony with one another as brothers and sisters, as well as with thy creation. Help us to have the gift of discernment to know what we can do better and how we can serve those around us and um, come to equality with, with one another. We love thee, Father, and we're grateful for our Savior. And we ask us to always remember thee and everything that thou has done for us and to appreciate thy creation and to 
um, spread our love for one another and for thy creation with all those around us. And we say this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.